Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. We're going to step away, actually, from the book of Acts and the book of Psalms for a few Sundays, and we're going to do something slightly different. Grayson and I want to help explain what makes a person a Christian, or to say it a different way, how to be saved. And there are several reasons why we're doing this, and we won't explain them really all, but... We want to do that. We want to actually pull away and, and make it an explicit statement and instruction. If you guys could find your seats quickly, that would be helpful. The Christian faith rises and falls upon that issue. Everything else doesn't matter. Why do we need to be saved? Or to put it a different way, does anyone need to be saved? And If so, why? Too often we make the mistake of thinking that the Christian faith is about other things that are quite important, but they're not fundamental. You can be baptized, but not be a Christian. You can be a faithful member of a local church, but not a Christian. You can understand and discuss many doctrines and teachings and still not be a Christian. You can call yourself a Christian, and not be a Christian. In my series in the book of Acts, we have seen how the Christians, the actual Christians, became the target of persecution and hatred. And at the core of it was the gospel, or the good news, which is all the word gospel means, the good news. It was the good news that they preached. It was the good news that they insisted must be believed for a person to be saved, or what we would call a Christian. Even when they fled for their lives, they still brought the gospel of salvation with them, literally speaking it as they fled. We're going to see in the rest of the book, uh, rest of Acts chapter 8, when we get back to it, two very different people and how they responded to that message. We're going to see Simon, the magician, who was a false believer, And we're going to see an Ethiopian who became a true believer. So we need to understand this, and we need to get it in our minds, and we need to fix it well. One is a man who was a false Christian, and yet people thought he was a Christian. And we have another man who was a true Christian. What we want to do, what Grace and I want to do behind all of this, is actually do this. Now hear me well. We want to give each of you the information you need so that you share the gospel to a person on how they might be saved. We want to equip you. We want to help you see this is what the gospel is. This is how it works. This is what you must do. This is what you must believe. 
Now, in the process of this, our hope is that for some of you, it might help you realize that, in fact, you're not a Christian, that you're not saved, in other words, and then be able to be saved by knowing and hearing and believing what is true. But for others, and this I believe will be for the bulk of you, it will be to give you what you need to be more clear to those whom you talk to. The reason for this is I have heard enough conversations over the last month or so of people talking to other people about Christ, about the Christian faith. So now you'll understand a bit of where it's flowing from. And I was alarmed actually alarmed, not angry, not shocked, but I was alarmed at how poor the presentation of the gospel to a person who needs to know the gospel was. It is of no value to you and to that person if you mess up the gospel, if you don't share that which is actually the good news. And for some of you, you are still terrified of speaking the gospel and you are afraid that you don't know enough or you're not good enough at it that you don't share it like you ought. And so in all of that, it's my desire and Grayson's desire to give you literally Christianity 101, basic Christianity. And for some of you, you're already thinking, I know all of this. My only request of you is if you're saying, I already know all of this, this will be no big deal, is ask yourself, are you then sharing it? Are you speaking it to other people? And if you're not, then let me submit to you that you don't understand it at all. You only have it somewhere in your mind that because you have appropriated this or understand this in your own life, that somehow that's sufficient, but that is not the call. That's what the point of our sermons in, in Acts 8 were, as the persecution fell upon these people, and as they, the church was being ravaged, and as the people were fleeing for their lives, it said that they brought the gospel, and they, it, the gospel was being preached as they went forth. As they ran for their lives, the one thing they carried with them was the gospel. The one thing I want you to have with you is the gospel. It is the only way that you will have life or be saved. So we want to give you certain things that are simply not negotiable about the Christian faith in the day and age where everything has become negotiable. So what we want to do is we want to use these sermons, and so we hope that you'll be bringing a pencil or a pen, whatever you want, uh, but hopefully a pencil, because I'm a big believer in later erasing things that you regret writing in your Bible, um, that you'll, you'll mark your Bible and that you will begin to turn your Bible into a tool. As you know, I'm not a big fan of electronic Bibles. They're very helpful in, in and of themselves at a time, at certain times, but they're not able to be marked in like you would your own private Bible. And a Bible should be well marked. All of you should look down at your Bible. And I say this, uh, and it's somewhat humorous because my Bible is pristine right now because it's my new Bible. But you should be able to look at anybody's Bible that has had it for any length of time, and it should be well used. It should be marked. It should be highlighted and underlined and cross-referenced because it is a tool 
given to us by God that we might know the mind of God. And so we want to try to give you some basic things that will help you understand how to bring the gospel into a conversation and know that you have the confidence that you're speaking that which is true. So we have just some uh, slides here. They're actually at the very back of my sermon notes that you have on your app. But I want to show you a little bit about what I did and have done over the years in my own Bible. My wife has her own system, and it's an excellent system. It's not the way I use it, but she has a way that she always does her marking and cross-referencing to give her a compendium of information that she can do when she's speaking to a person. Now, all of this actually happened for me when I was confronted by Jehovah Witnesses that came to my door in California, and I was a young Bible student. And I sat down with them, and we were talking, and they started to do what they do, and and I was answering them, but I realized that I didn't have all the passages in my mind like I needed, and so I, I was already at a loss for some words. And so what I began to do is I actually, this is the inside of my, one of my old Bibles. And it is, you don't, if you can't read it, it doesn't matter. I just want you to get a sense of what your pastor's Bible looked like. And all it is, is it shows you the persons of the Trinity, because with Jehovah's Witnesses, they will not believe in the triune God. And so I began to create up little crib notes on the inside of my Bible, and I could sit down with any person and not have to try to keep it all in my brain. I was able to take them to the first verse and then build from there and show them systematically that, in fact, the Bible showed God to be a triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's just the inside of my Bible, and you can look at it on the sermon notes, or if you want to look at it in person, grab me. But then another thing that we I I did was I began to create in the Bible um, simply the first verse of whatever point I'm trying to make. And that's very, very important that you do something like that so that you can take a person and bring them right away into the Word of God and show them, look, here is what it says. So an example is in my sermon today, I'm going to be talking about the extent of sin. And the first verse that you go to might be Jeremiah. Um, and, and, or Genesis 6, 5. And, and Genesis 6, 5 is a very important passage. So that's the first thing that you would put on the inside of your Bible. When you talk about the problem, sin, what you will do then is you would say, what is the extent of sin? And you just say Genesis 6, 5. That's all you got to do. Then when you turn to Genesis 6, 5, in the margin right next to it, you would then put the next verse that you would want to take the person to. And for that, as happens to be in mind, Jeremiah 17, 9, and 10. And so you put that there. Then when you turn to that passage, you have written in the margin already the next verse that you want to take them to. And when you come to the end of that, then you can open up the front of your Bible again and look at the next thing that you want to do, the depth of sin or the result of sin. All you're doing with that is you're turning your Bible into something that now is helpful to you and you can use. 
So that's all that we're doing with these slides. That's all that we're doing in this sermon. For many of you, you know these things. But if you don't have these memorized and you can kick them off with the greatest of ease, we recommend that you take something as simple as this and equip yourself. Do this in the Bible that you would use if somebody is, uh, comes into your uh, life for whatever reason. Meaning, you might want one in your car. Um, for the longest time, I've, I've kept a Bible in my car. Why? Simply so that if I'm caught out someplace, I can then take that Bible and use it. You should have a Bible that you dedicate in your house that you don't have to go hunting for, but it's right by the front door or whatever that has these notes in it so that when somebody knocks on your door, you're able to do it. The whole point of this is being ready And you'll be amazed at how often God will then give you opportunity to share your faith, to share the Christian faith, to share the way of salvation, because you actually are anticipating it and looking for it versus those horrible moments in your life where somebody all of a sudden asks you a question and you look like a deer caught in the headlights and you're like, ah, uh, I'll get back to you on it. You should always be ready and able to bring to the people the message of the gospel. So what we're going to do is we're going to, I think we're done there. Um, What we're going to do is we're going to give the sermon series in four weeks. My job is to give you the problem. Why do we need to be saved? And I'm going to give you the problem. The next week, uh, Lord willing, then Grayson will give you the solution. Third, we'll give you the commands. And fourth, we'll give you the benefits. So if I were you and you were listening to me and say, you know, he's not saying something unusually hard. In my Bible, at the very front of it or in the very back, wherever you have a blank page, I would write why we need to be saved. And I would say the problem, solution, commands, and benefits, and then be ready to write down some passages. Now, from there, what our goal is, is we want to bring this into real life, so to speak, and so then where our plan is to do four more sermons over four more weeks, and we're going to now use what we learned together in light of those sermons, and we're going to apply them to certain other groups. So the first week, I will discuss Roman Catholic Church. The next week, he's going to discuss Islam. Then we'll talk about Mormons. And then we'll talk about Jehovah's Witnesses. And all we're going to do there is we are going to take this little uh, layout of the problem, solution, commands, and benefits, and we're going to say, here's what the Scripture says. Now let's look at the Roman Catholic Church. What do they say is a problem? What do they say is a solution? What do they say are the commands? What do they say are the benefits? And we can now look and say, "Is, is there truth or error? And the same thing with Islam. And you can do this with everything. So for you, what I, we hope you'll do near the end of this is you'll start to get comfortable by in doing this. And that is when you talk to a person and they start complaining about the life situation or problems or solutions to the world, that you can then turn the corner and you can ask them, what do you think is a problem? Just ask them that. And after they they talk about it and you ask them a lot of questions, then you can ask them, then what is your solution to this? 
And all you're doing is you're applying that little grid work against what they're saying, and you're seeking to show them from that, may I show you what the Bible says? And now you're into the gospel. So we want to give you that outline that the very first series we're in right now gives, the problem, solution, commands, and benefits, and then show you how each one of those groups diverge. And you can do this to anything that you wish from that day forward. Now today, we will see the problem with which all of mankind is confronted. Some people talk about this being the bad news that you have to know before you know the good news. Simply put, every person must deal with the nature of evil in the world. Many years ago, I preached a sermon uh, entitled, Why Do Babies Die? And in it, I addressed that very issue. Why do babies die? There was an actor and a writer, his name is Stephen Fry. He was interviewed and uh, years ago, and he was asked what he might say to God because he was a well-known atheist. And the, the interviewer asked him, what would you say to God if there is one on that day where you stand before him? And this was his answer. His answer was, bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world that there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? And in reality, he puts into words there what so many are asking in their own mind, and some of you even here. He says out loud what many have said only to themselves. If you encounter people and talk to them about the gospel for any length of time, this will be a typical response to you. Today, it seems to be more common You're saying that God hates a homosexual or a transgender or this or that. It's usually those things, but it's the same concept. God somehow is unhappy with us. How dare he? This isn't fair. I have best friends who are this way or that way, and you're saying they're not going to heaven. How dare he? How dare that be true? No one with a half a brain, however, would deny that there is something seriously wrong with this universe. From catastrophic natural events such as earthquakes and tsunamis and such, to the horror of war, to the great harm inflicted by disease, to the crippling effects of poverty and starvation, you learn quickly as you get older that governments from the beginning of recorded history have shown incredible ability to afflict their people in every possible way. You add to this the sort of things done by us or to us as individuals. People have suffered molestation, Sexual abuse, physical abuse, torture, maiming, murder. We have lied and we have been lied to. We have hated and been hated, and the list goes on and on. Some of this, some of you in this room carry deep, deep scars due to things that you did 
or had done to you? Why? And how is it resolved? That's Everything else doesn't matter. Why is it this way? And my argument to you, my position to you is simply this. You reject the Christian faith, and I say that you reject then the only thing that makes sense of this whole mess. Reject the Christian faith, and everything will no longer make sense. I want you to give this thought, because right now, if you are rejecting in any way the Christian faith, and that's fine, you're you're free to do that, obviously, but if you are rejecting in any way the Christian faith, then I ask you, come up with your own explanation then. Anyone can complain about it. Come up with your own answer. Why is the world the way it is? And then give your solution and see if you can honestly show it to be an actual solution. All Stephen Fry did was he echoes the complaint that countless people have said over the centuries, why is there evil and why is it found in every corner of this world? But here's the problem. He cannot give you a solution. That is a problem as most people see it. Why is there so much evil? But in reality, bone cancer in children, typhoid fever, and rape, and murder, and mayhem are all just consequences. They're not actually the problem. They're not the real problem. Rather, they are the fruit of the problem. When you have a person who is offended or bitter or angry over some evil done to them or some harm suffered, you will find them asking something along the lines of this. And these are actual statements said to me. Where was your God when I was being raped? And you know what you do? You say, whoa, I'm done. I'm not ready to answer that. And you should be. You should be. You need to be. I want to encourage you, though, that if you will listen and learn from this simple series, you will be better equipped to speak to people in any situation about the genuine hope and life that's found in the good news of Jesus Christ. If you're listening to this sermon with the goal of winning fights, I have nothing I can say to you. If you're wanting to hear these sermons so that you can win your argument when you debate the Christian faith, then I have no time. But if your heart is to see people who have no hope, have hope, who have no life, have life, who are not forgiven, find forgiveness, then listen and listen with a pen or pencil in hand, your Bible open, and then seek to apply it. You don't have to ever shy from the overt evil seen today. In fact, you can learn to nod with true sympathy, and you can agree that it is wrong. And in the time of their pain, you can ache with them and for them. But beloved, you can't leave it there you can then turn the conversation, whether then or maybe a little bit later. Sometimes it's best that you do it a later day. 
You can then turn the conversation by simply asking a question, one question. And it's not, let me tell you what you need to do. It's, can you tell me your thoughts on why it's like this? And then, what is your solution? Because most of the time, people are just hurting with what's happened to them or what's happened to somebody they love. And they don't understand it. And they have not thought about why is this happening and how is it resolved. You can do so much by asking them. Let them talk. Shush your mouth and nod. And and if you open your mouth, ask questions. What do you mean by that? Help me understand that better. Be a genuine individual, genuinely wanting to hear, not that person with your mind so closed that their mouth is going and you're still not caring one bit about what they're saying because all you're waiting for is your turn where you can win the argument. But you don't have any care for their soul. Nod, listen, ask questions, hear them, and then propose that they consider what the Bible says. Now, the problem, as most of you already know, the real problem is due to sin. It's that simple. And today, what I want to show you is the root of sin, the depth of sin, the extent of sin, and the result of sin. The root, depth, extent, and result of sin. That's all. Very simple, very basic, and we're not going to look at every possible verse. We physically don't have the time for that. But we do want to understand, with that uh, introduction, what do we do with the problem? The real problem is sin. What, where do wars and rumors of wars come from? From a heart of sin that not is in just in the heart of mankind uh, as individuals, but it is in this whole existence, this realm we live in. It is under the power of sin, and it, sh- it shows itself in all of these different consequences. So why do we need to be saved? Well, we need to be saved because we have a problem, and that problem is sin. So where's the root of this? Where's the root of sin? We would want to begin, and you don't need to even turn there because I'll just briefly mention it, but you would want to begin in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, meaning the very beginning of the Bible, where he lays out, the Bible lays out, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you know that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the Bible starts with God and nothing else, just God and only God, and then everything else comes because of God. There's not God in creation coexisting for all eternity. There's just God, and then things happened. It establishes right up front something that you have to get in your own mind, and that is that God is God and you are not. That your best friend who you love is not God. The federal government of the United States of America is not God. The Dalai Lama is not God. Buddha is not God. No one is God but God. Everything else is created. 
He simply is, and he is the creator and the maker of all things that you see or don't see. Therefore, everything else is a creature. You and I are created by God and for God. If you reject that, is then to reject the meaning of everything. If you cannot accept that, that's, that's your choice. But I would say that you no longer now have any ability to make sense of anything. You can try and feel free. Especially, this becomes a problem if you want to hold to some form of evolution. Because by its very nature, evolution gives no meaning or purpose or explanation of anything. It just is. Why are you here? There is no reason for you to be here. And when you die, there is no value in your death because you just are. You are merely an accident. You are random. No evolutionist is actually a consistent evolutionist. I've never met one. Because a truly consistent evolutionist is totally amoral about all things. They never get angry because there's nothing to get angry over because to become angry implies that something is wrong. But in an evolutionary thought process, nothing is wrong because everything just is. That's why every evolutionist is exceedingly inconsistent because they in their heart, know something's not right. This is the problem with Stephen Fry. He can accuse and complain all day long. Fine, complain. Complain about bone cancer. The child still has it. Complain about crippling poverty that will starve that little baby to death, but it's still there. Complain all you want. Shake your fist at God all you want. It doesn't change anything. What Stephen Fry cannot do then is deal with an or give you an answer or a solution. All he is is like a child, very petulant and angry because he's not getting his own way. And he thinks that mom and dad are somehow really bad and really unfair because of it all. So when we talk about the root of sin, we have to start with the fact that we're a creature living in God's world, how God created it, and you have to accept that. Don't like it? Too bad. You still live here, and you still breathe his air, and your heart pumps his blood, and you eat his food, and you experience his gravity, and all of the other things that just happen that we call life, it belongs to God, not you. Now, with that in mind, you would want to go then to Romans chapter 5. What is the root of sin? So if I were writing on the inside of my Bible, I would just right away write Romans 5.12. Romans 5.12. I forgot to write this one down, the page number, if you're using one of those Bibles under the seat in front of you. Uh, Forgive me. But you can hear this. It's, it's a simple passage. In Romans 5.12, it is written, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world. Did you hear that? Through one man's sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, 
Why? Because all sinned. There's a lot packed into that. As through one man, sin entered into the world. So first we have that thing I'm arguing is the problem, sin. It entered the world through one man, and then what was the result of the presence of sin? Death. Why? Because it came through sin. And so now death spreads to all men. Why? Because all have sinned. So it's all built around this issue of sin. And it's describing an event back in Genesis chapter 3, where God had created man. He created a man named, and he named him Adam, which literally means man. And from, the, from man, he created woman. And she was given the name by Adam, and her name was Eve. And the command had been given to Adam not to eat of a specific fruit. It was a simple restriction. You can do all you want, but not this. And then we find this temptation taking place of the woman by Satan, who is the enemy. And he shows her all the reasons why she should eat that fruit, and she ate it. But at that point, she sinned, but that's not the issue. It then says that she gave it to Adam and he ate. And at that moment, as the man, as the head of the human race, sin entered the world. That's what Romans 12, 5.12 is saying. Through one man, not one woman, one man, sin entered the world. Adam ate, and when he disobeyed and he chose his wife over his creator, everything fell. That's why it's called the fall when you talk to Christians. From the very moment that he sinned, everything changed. All of creation now came under the power and the enslavement of sin. And so the Bible describes creation now as groaning. That all of creation groans. Why? Because of sin. And I would argue that if you would just learn to be quiet for a moment, you'd hear it yourself. You'll hear it in your own aches. You'll hear it in the arguments of the children next door. You'll see it, smell it when you walk into a hospital. You'll see it on the faces of those who have been given the most terrifying and horrible of news. And the more that you become aware of how it is, that it is everywhere, you'll, it, it will literally be screaming at you. And you will share in creation's groaning. The sad joke about those of you who are young is that you think that you're going to be different. I thought that. We all thought that. Then you get old. Literally had a conversation with a man just 45 minutes ago. And we were just talking about the fact of how in our life, we're all walking down this path and we think it's our path. We've made our choice. We're doing our thing. And what we don't realize is that it's just all of these little individual paths, but they're all, as you get older or as the time that God has ordained for you starts to run out, all of those paths converge onto one path. You're all heading toward the same thing. You're all heading toward death. Some of you will die in the most horrific of ways. Some of you will just die in ways that people will just shake their head and say, how? How do you even know a person could die that way? And some of you will die peacefully and quietly. 
but you're all going to die. And nothing you can do will change that. And in the process, you will watch those you love suffer. And you will suffer. And you will just have all of these things that people ache under and groan under because it is there, but we don't have a word for it. But the word is sin. Sin and death has entered the world. And it came through Adam, who we have no say over because he was the first man. He is our father. And he brought sin into the world. So you're born in sin. So that's the root. The first man chose rebellion over his creator, over his God. Now sin, death, and everything else evil and twisted becomes the norm. The second thing then we want to say is if that's the root, it came way back before we had a say in the matter, what's the depth? How deep does it go? That's the question we're going to now ask. How deep does sin go? And in many minds, people are generally good. In fact, there's a website, I think it's called peoplearegood.com. That was a funny one to read. Many of you think this, even though you would tell me you don't. It's like, it's sin. It's just sin. When we look at the many religions out in the world, one of the key things you should always look for is how do they deal with sin? How do they deal with evil? How do they deal with wickedness? What is the problem with mankind and how deep? That's the question. How deep does it go? The Bible is exceedingly clear on this. Sin affects all aspects of a person. In other words, there is no part of you or me that's unmarred by sin. There is nothing about you good in itself. So go into the very depths of any person, search, and you will find sin's presence and sin's power affecting it. You want to unpeel a human being any way you want, and you want to look at the core, you want to look at that little spark inside, and you will find, if you are honest, sin. It stains it. And it is here that people will begin to break away from actual Christianity. They'll carry on all kinds of other forms of Christian faith, but they will break away from the biblical teaching the truth of the Christian faith, and that is that we are dead in our sins. We are sinners by nature. So Christianity then becomes one about self-improvement or shoring up a few things that are a little weak in our lives, but we can fix them, and then we'll be in. We'll be good. But if Christian faith begins with the admission there is no good in me, people will begin to back away. So let's look at some passages. Uh, uh, if you have that pew Bible near the back part of your Bible, because it's divided into two sections, Old and New Testament, go to the back part of your Bible to page 32, but it's Mark 7, Mark 7, verses 20 to 23. So here is Jesus giving us his discussion about how deep, to sin go. 
page 32, and then just find the small numbers 20 and all the way down to 23. Mark 7, 20 to 23. So Jesus is talking, and he says, in verse 20, out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. So notice the source. In verse 21, for from within, out from what? The heart proceed these things. The the problem has little to do with the outside of you and everything to do with the inside of you. So the result is that the heart is what defiles you. It's not things done to you. Some of you, you, your whole life is defined because you had been raped or molested and you have allowed that thing to then define you and make you somehow uh, hurt or, or bitter or wounded or scarred and that you can't function. But that is not what defiles you. It's sin in your own heart that defiles you. And out of that heart comes all of this garbage. And you say, well, I haven't done that. It doesn't matter. Pick your poison. It's the fruit that you practice. But the root of it goes deep into your soul. So the fruit is varied in verses 21 to 22. He lists all sorts of different things, but they all are coming from the depths of your own heart. Now go to a place in the Old Testament that would be page 550 in the uh, front section of your uh, pew Bible. But Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, a passage many of you have memorized probably. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. And again, let's just see what God says about us. Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, the heart is more deceitful than what? Than all else. And desperately sick, who can know it? And that's a rhetorical question. The answer is none of us. You can't know it. Why can you not know your own heart? Because it's more deceitful than everything else. Your heart, yours, your heart, my heart, it is more deceitful than all else. Sin is not merely what comes out on the outside, but absolutely, it's actually the opposite. Sin is what you are by nature. That is why no amount of therapy, self-help, counseling, or hard work will ever resolve your problem, because your problem is a heart problem. You can clean it up, you can dust it off, you can call it whatever you want to call it, but it still comes down to a heart problem, and your heart is always lying to you. In fact, picture the most lying piece of garbage that you can picture in your mind and say, that is a liar, and your heart trumps it every time. You are their biggest liar. 
And again, all you have to learn is get into somebody's life and begin to help them through counsel, and you'll find out that they will lie to you like nobody's business. Because our heart is given to sin and is desperately sick. These are just a couple of passages, so many more that we could go to, but these declare that sin goes very deep into the core of what makes you human. Your heart is sinful. It's in rebellion. So, okay, we now have the problem. The root of it is sin. It goes deep within our heart, but how extensive is it? Well, we can just keep here in, in Jeremiah 17, 9, and 10 and see it. It's more deceitful than all else. Nothing else is more problematic than your heart of sin. Nothing else that you say that is the solution you say, well, if we could just fix this or we can fix that, no, none of that will resolve the problem because it's so extensive because you have a heart, all of us, that is so full of lying. In fact, the only one who can search it and understand it is God, Yahweh. I search the heart. I test the innermost being. And then the most terrifying thing happens. He says, Give to, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. You don't want that, beloved. You don't want that. If, if your heart is so evil and so wicked that it's always lying, and then God says, the only one who can know what your heart really is saying is me, and you then say, oh, that's not too bad then. That's a lie. And he says, I will test your heart and I will give you exactly what you deserve. Can you not get a little afraid? On the day that he judges you, he strips away all of the lies, and he just confronts you with that. And then says, now you will be paid. The idea of believing you can trust your heart to do the right thing is simply rubbish. It's desperately sick. And so the question is posed, who of us can even understand it? But we should go to Genesis 6-5, right at the very beginning of the Bible, for the most extensive statement. Many of you will have this marked in your Bible already because I point you to it frequently. <coughs> Excuse me. Genesis 6-5, the most penetrating description of mankind anywhere. Just before God destroyed almost all of humanity in the flood, he says this about humanity. Then God saw, or Yahweh saw, that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What a lovely verse. I want you to see this. Because he, he breaks it into two ways, two distinct parts. He goes with the external, then the internal. God looks at both, and he sees both. With the external, we see the wickedness was great upon the earth. So it extends not only deep within our soul, but it extends throughout all of the hu uh, human race. All the way throughout the whole of the earth, all of it was great. There wasn't little uh, little valleys of goodness. It was just great over all the earth. And that's all being placed, the blame is all being placed squarely upon 
man. The evil of man was great on the earth. But then he moves quickly to the internal. And he says, then, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Continually. What's his judgment? The judgment is this. He looks at you and he says, evil. That's his judgment of all of humanity, everyone. Strip away everything you want to drape over your thoughts and hearts, and he says it's evil. And you say, okay, but explain that. Your intent, he says. The intent, what does that mean? The word actually means that which is a thought before it becomes a thought. So when you intend to think, it's what he's talking about. But you can't even think of the intent because the moment you think of the intent, it actually now has a thought. So at, before anything has even become a thought in your mind, you who think you think so swell, it's already evil. How often do your intents become evil or show themselves to be evil? Every time, he says. Every intent. Show one thought in your mind that you on your own can produce that's not evil, and God says, liar. You lie. You lie to yourself. Every thought and every intent of a thought is only evil continually. Only shows the totality of that evil. There was never an exception in time that the thoughts or intents were not evil. Think of that. You think a lot, and you're cranking it out continually. That shows the constancy of evil, that only not only was every thought evil, not every embryo of thought evil, but the only thing the heart does is evil. There's not a time then on our own as a human being in which we are not continuously cranking out like a factory evil. And it is exploding into the eyes of God. And you say, why does God judge? Because you and I are constant affronts to our Creator. So that's the extent. Let's finish this by looking then at the result. Go to Romans. This would be in the back part of your Bible on the Pew Bible, page 119. Romans chapter 1, a passage many of us are very familiar with, so we we won't break it down in depth, especially since I only have 10 minutes. But Romans 1, 18, down to the very end of it, This is something Grayson just recently took you, what, two sermons ago, I think, and we were looking at it. Maybe it was three sermons ago. Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32, we want to look at then what is the result of sin. If the problem is sin, that's the root, and it goes back to Adam's rebellion against God, and he, as our forefather, brought sin into the world. Now we're all in sin. And then we see the depth of the sin that resides in the depths of my heart. We saw the extent of sin that is great over all the earth, but it's also great that the only thing we on our own can do is evil continually. Then what is the result? 
Well, he says that the wrath of God, that's the word, uh, the phrase you want to underline, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And so now you start to lie to yourself. You're like, okay, so God's wrath, God's anger is directed toward the people who are doing ungodliness. True. Yes. Okay, well, I'm not doing that, so I'm good. Liar. You're a liar. On your own, every intent of the heart is only evil continually. You is what he is filled with wrath toward. You. All of us. That's the problem. Only evil continually. God's wrath is revealed against, or revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, unrighteousness, of men who what? They lie to themselves. They suppress the truth. I'm not that bad. I think you're a little excessive. You need to calm down. Maybe take a Valium. You need to this. You need to do that. You shouldn't take yourself so seriously, Pastor. On and on and on. I've heard it all. You've said it all. We all hear it all. That's your problem with your child. That's the problem with your grandparents. That's your problem. Sin. And then he talks about this truth. He says, that which is known about God is evident where? where? Within their heart. That which is known about God is evident within them. Why? Because God made it evident to them. And then he explains it. Since the creation of the world, he has made his invisible attributes, his power, his divine nature being seen. He says, so that no one has an excuse in verse 20. So you're lying to yourself, oh, there's no God. Well, the Bible says you're a fool who says in his heart there's no God because your own heart knows there's a God, but you then lie to yourself and say, no, there's no God. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile where? In their thoughts. Why? Because their thoughts are only always evil continually, and their foolish heart was darkened. So they think that they're wise, but they become fools, So verse 24, what is the result? Here's the beginning of the result. Hear me well. The beginning is, therefore God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored. And so from that moment that we as sinners, God gives us over to our own sin. It doesn't, it's not just that he lets you go your own way and that, and he somehow passively said, well, you do what you want. No, it says he literally gives you over to your sin. And it shows itself, and, and, and we can go through the whole list, but we don't have the time. You can read this. Whether it be the, the things which are against nature, that which is natural. And the most natural thing is to honor God who made us. But instead, we honor everything but God. And so we do that in, in our sexual relationships and our relationships emotionally with one another. And so we, we end up being filled with whether it be homosexuality or sexual immorality or wickedness or greed or envy. You pick your poison, but it's there because you've been given over to your sin. You say, well, I don't think I'm that bad. Okay, how about being disobedient to parents? In verse 30, that's one. And all of that says that God's wrath is now against you. 
And you say, well, I still don't think this is right about me. How about you who give hearty approval to those who practice them? Every one of you who votes certain ways and affirms certain things and say love is love and all the other things that we do, it all puts us and shows us what our heart is. But that's the beginning result of sin. It's just the chaos you see. The reason there's murder, the reason there's immorality and rapes and bone cancer and everything else is sin entered the world. And now we see the result. But the ultimate result is in chapter 2. So just keep reading. Therefore you are without excuse, O man, everyone who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you judge you who judge practice the same things. You say, well, not exactly the same things. The same stuff. You, you practice sin. And so he says that the judgment of God falls rightly upon those who practice such things. But do you presume this, O man, who passes judgment on those who practice such things and does the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. In this passage, we get into the full measure of the results of sin. He's going to condemn you. It's a judicial term where the judgment is rendered guilty. In verses 2, 3, and 5, you see the phrase judgment of God. This is where that condemnation comes from. God will judge you. And the result is in verse 5, wrath and the day of wrath. There will be that day when he says, enough is enough, it's done. You stand before me, you give an account. I will unfold for you all of the lies of your heart, all of the things that came pouring forth out of your life, and you will stand either pure or guilty. That is your problem. And that is the problem. So as I draw all this to a close, I want you to understand that all we did in brief, in this brief hour, is look at what the Bible teaches about humanity. And you will find that this is the thread that runs all the way through the Bible. If you don't grasp then, then nothing else will matter. Your parenting will reflect that. When you excuse sin, when you downplay sin, when you say, well, it's just this, they're sleepy, they're this... It doesn't matter. It's sin. All of it flowing out of it in every possible way. To not grasp sin and our broken relationship with our Creator is to step onto a road that will lead invariably to error. But the greatest problem is that it leads you and I not to consider consider the end of all things. Once you reject sin in whatever way or you downplay it, then you don't think about where this is all heading. You will die. And then what? And this world will come to an end. And then what? And every person has some sort of idea, however vague or complex, of what happens next after death. And every person has some sort of idea how we ought to live right now. All of you have your own ideas. But I submit to you that a robust understanding of sin and the fall of mankind gives the best explanation as to why things are the way they are because our hearts are broken and sinful and in rebellion and they lie.
but they can't give you hope knowing that. If that's true, then each of us is a sinner going our own way, and we are both passively and actively rejecting our maker, then how do we become right with God? How do we fix this? And that's what we'll look at next week. I want you to go home today heavy, those of you who do not trust in Christ. I want you to wrestle. I want you to figure it out. You look at yourself and find out what lies there within you. Because next week what we will see and what you heard in song, in prayer, in the Lord's Supper is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And what we'll do next week, Lord willing, is we'll take Jesus and we'll put it on the backdrop of everything we learned today about what we are and see that he is truly the only way of rescue, the only deliverance from our sin, and that he is truly the only way, the truth, and the life that we would have. So let's pray. Father, the word is brutal because it unflinchingly states to us what our problem is. Every marriage problem is down to this. Every personal problem, every government, societal problem, all of it lies at the heart of the problem of sin. And we spend our whole lives trying to downplay it, call it something else, fix it, clean it up. Father, open our eyes to the futility of it all, see that we are all hurtling toward the same end, that we die. We have no say in that. We certainly have no say with what lies afterward, but we do have the certainty of your word that you say that your wrath is even now pouring out upon the earth, and all we do is store it up until that day of great wrath when you unleash it upon us. Why? Because we are not the creator and you are our maker, and we do not accept you. Open our eyes to that. Let each of us, whether we say we are a Christian or not, let us examine our hearts by the Spirit. Give us eyes to see where lies our hope, and do we see ourselves as the problem. Help us to see these things, Father. Bring us back next week. In your son's holy name, amen.